0: Go ahead and grab your Bibles. If it is your first time and you use a device or you use a phone, we, uh, we go through the English Standard Version, better known as the ESV, and uh, you can click on that. And the text today is 1 Peter chapter 3. We are about right dead center in the middle of our Holiness and Hope series, which is going to take us through Christmas. Today we're going to be going 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 through 7, and I am just going to dive right in. Peter says this, "'Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair.' the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Verse 5, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Not a lot of amens while I was reading this text, I just noticed. A conspicuous lack of mm's as I was reading 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. I love you guys. More importantly, God loves you, and we need to remember that everything written in His Word is for our good, is for our flourishing as men and women, as husbands and wives, as moms and dads, as singles. As teenagers, as kids, everything written is for the glory of God, which leads to our ultimate good. When we get to texts in the Bible like this one dealing with gender roles, pastors tend to freak out. And they freak out because the Bible is advocating something so countercultural that they're afraid. They're afraid women are going to pull pistols out from under their skirts and start gunning them down, right? And let's be honest, sometimes that's probably happened. I haven't witnessed that, but I'm sure it's happened. So here's what also happens. I think this is way more important for our time this morning. Some of you, maybe a lot of you, have grown up hearing these passages. So instead of having this shocked or angry or concerned reaction to them, you just kind of nod your heads, and then you close your Bibles without any conviction of whether whether you're actually living them out. So in other words, what I mean by that is you you don't disagree with the text because you understand that you're not allowed to disagree with the text, but listen, there's nothing in your life that shows you've actually agreed to live it out, all right? One of the things Melissa and I almost learned how to do last year was cross-country ski. Um, (laughs) Our instructor kept telling us, it's just as natural as walking. Right? She kept saying that over and over again, which is true if you're someone who falls over every three feet as you walk like an infant, right? So my point with that is that what we're doing and what Peter has been bringing us through the last three weeks is this idea of submission, learning to submit to God in all things. And here's the thing, like me and Melissa last uh, winter, I, I mean, it's, it's wobbly, it's wobbly it feels unnatural to us it's unnatural to our flesh it's hard to live out our faith as exiles and sojourners because we're in a hostile environment you know what part of that hostile environment is it's our own hearts our own hearts is that hostile environment so for 3 weeks now peter's been answering the question of how a person lives for god in godless surroundings and he's kind of pointed to our nation he pointed a little bit to the workplace and to the home. And now he's really dealing with how to live with unbelieving spouses. So if we jump back to chapter 2 verse 24, we lock in with some precision To Peter's overarching idea, which is this, to die to sin and to live to righteousness. We hit that pretty hard last week, and that is the end game. This is the end game as we go through 1 Peter, to die to sin and live to righteousness. And then we get to chapter 3, verse 7. We can accomplish this, he's saying, in regards, in context to being husband and wife, we can accomplish this because he says we are co-heirs, we are together together under the umbrella of God's grace. We are co-heirs of the grace of life. So before we start using real, friendly, non-confrontational words like submission this morning, let's remember that it's only possible to submit to one another with joy because God's grace has given us the heart of Christ to even accomplish it because we don't naturally die to ourselves. The first thing that crossed your mind when you stumbled out of bed this morning wasn't gee, it feels like a great day to die to sin and submit to Christ and submit to my spouse. None of you guys woke up. That was not the first, unless you guys were just like up all night praying and reading through the passage. If that's one of you, see me after. I'm probably going to give you like a prize or something. But that probably didn't happen naturally for m- most of us. But oddly enough, God's call for husbands and wives is just that. It's to die to sin and live to righteousness as co-heirs of the grace of life. And we're going to see Peter, he kind of lays it out for us here in three steps. He gives us our calling, and he gives us our conduct, and he gives us our character within that calling. And we see it right there in verses 1 through 2. He says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word, By the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, when I read that, man, some of you fellows are literally afraid to look over at your wife right now when I say that. But the word subject here, it simply means to willingly put yourself under. It means to willingly put yourself under. Here's what it does not mean. It does not mean to willingly put yourself under abusive or harmful situations, or anything that goes against the laws of God or society. That's not what God's Word is advocating here. It also doesn't mean ladies, wives. It also is not a call that you are to submit to all men. That's not what it's saying. It's, it's lasering in on this being a submission to the husband that God has given you. And for those of you who are single, for those of you women who are single this morning, your call is to submit yourself under the rule and authority of God until the day that he may or may not provide you with a husband who will then die for you so that you can submit yourself to him. So there's a lot of applications for all of us as we go through this passage. Now, Peter goes deeper here because he charges women to subject themselves under the authority of their husbands, even if they're unbelievers, And again, we got to remember a little bit of the context here. This is coming from a time when women were completely under the rule and authority, actually, of their fathers, and they were forced to marry men who were chosen for them. So now, Peter, again, he's writing this to women who would have had that kind of background coming up, being married to men that they were forced to marry because those were the customs of the day. And I'm not going to lie to you, as the father of a daughter who is approaching marriage age, I'm not incredibly opposed to that. If any of you want to put a sign-up sheet back at the desk after the service today, I'm going to jump in line and sign that. I don't mind that very much. But again, all joking aside, Peter is writing to, to women here that did not have privilege of being able to say, well, I just fell in love with this dude, and we got married, and everything's just been peachy ever since. They were put into situations that were not of their own doing, and his instruction here related to unbelieving husbands is that this, since they do not obey the Word of God, they might be won to Christ through the lifestyle of their wife who does obey the Word of God. So, if you're a wife today, and you are married to an unbeliever. And one of the things is that this doesn't mean that you never open your mouth as much as that might be your husband's greatest marital fantasy, okay? That's not what this is saying. It means that your love for Christ and trust in Him results in a lifestyle that reads like a living billboard of the power of the gospel. That's what Peter is saying right here, And let me say that this also applies to men who claim Christ that you women might be married to but live passively like unbelievers to their shame. Yeah, that's you, fellas, some of you. So we see this and we go, well, those are unbelievers. Yeah, well, some of you are living like unbelievers, Some of you are living to the degree that your wives are being forced to submit to something that God has not called you to be. But you know what Peter says here? Peter says to the women, submit to their authority. So that by the words of your life, your unbelieving spouse or your spouse who claims Christ but clearly, lives like a non-believer. Maybe one to Christ, or maybe one to repentance, because of the heart of you believing women, because of you believing wives, because of you obedient, faithful, charitable wives. So the call to be subject to your un, to your own husbands. Is ultimately, ultimately, the call for submission to Jesus Christ. What happens is that we get the order wrong. We forget what it says in chapter 2, verse 21 for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. We went through that last week. What happens, why we get the order wrong is we start with ourselves and we say, this feels beneath me. And you know what? It would be beneath you if you didn't start with submitting to Christ who is above you. Everything else falls underneath that. And that's the order. Without that created order in place, what happens is all of this becomes an issue of equality instead of functionality that Christ has given us the blueprints for here. So Peter starts by dealing with a wife's calling, which is to submit to her husband as unto the Lord even if he's an unbeliever and then from calling he steps into conduct by pointing out that though it seems the opposite though it seems the opposite sexiness is not what wins husbands to Christ or toward further sanctification don't worry we're going to we're going to keep everything pg here today okay but what peter is talking about is Part of this submission to husbands is also the conduct that wives need to show, the priority they need to give to the things that God can use to actually change the hearts of husbands that either need to be saved or need to repent. He says this in verses 3 and 4. He says, Don't let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Ladies, Peter is not telling you to stop shopping at Sephora. That's not what he's saying right here. He's not saying you can never enter another Aveda salon, all right? And his husbands were begging you not to do that either, Okay? The Bible's list of clothing options was not influenced by the Amish community. That's not what he's talking about. You only have to read the Song of Solomon where Solomon mentions all kinds of outer adornments, strings of pearls, gold-studded ornaments with silver. So this is not Peter saying he's against clothing or he's against external things, Um, that you guys enjoy dressing with and making yourself beautiful. That's not really what he's saying. In fact, even in the story of the prodigal son, we're told how the father adorns his returning son with a robe and rings. So this isn't just a push against outer adornments. But here's what it really is saying, is that your appearance, this is what Peter is saying, your appearance is not the extent of your influence of power in the home. That's what he's driving at here. You have something far more significant and powerful to affect the deeper regions of your husband's heart. Peter's not downgrading beauty as much as he's saying that the formation of your heart is more precious to God than the beautification of your face. And that is what is going to have impact on the heart of your husband the big picture here is don't depend on your external beauty to accomplish what only your internal beauty can. And let's be honest. Peter is asking you to do something, ladies, far more difficult, isn't he? I mean, he could have said, you know what? You know, get a personal trainer, let's start doing some CrossFit, and set up that Victoria's Secret Charge account because that's what's going to win him over. That's what's going to do it. But Peter's not doing that. Peter is going after the heart of the wife as one of the means that God can use to change the heart of a husband. It's twofold, and that's what He's doing. Here's the thing. When I look at my own wife, hear what I'm saying here, okay? When I look at my own wife, when I look at Melissa, I need something more lasting than lingerie when we walk through the valleys, I need a beauty that comes from her belief that God is sovereignly in control. I need a gentle and a quiet spirit when the chaos knob in our lives has been turned up to 11. I need my wife to be the person that most pleases the Lord. I need imperishable qualities. We remember in in Proverbs 31. It says, charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. I need conduct that springs from godly character. So this is Peter's calling for wives. So he says, here's what you're called to. Here's what I need your conduct to look like like, because it needs to spring forth from this particular Character that is being cultivated in you through this calling and through this conduct. Look what it says in verse five. Let's read that again. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So, as a believing spouse, you are called to conduct yourself with the kind of character that women of the faith conducted themselves. This is where you take your cues, okay? I know, man, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of great examples out there. There's a lot of great examples out there if you stream the Kardashians or you watch the new season of The Bachelor, all exemplary, right, for us, right? But Peter is pulling you back to Scripture for examples of the kind of godly character called to go after. And he goes to Sarah, Abraham's wife, which is interesting, which is super interesting. Because if you know anything about Abraham, this dude was not a master class of good and godly decision-making, right? I mean, this is a dude who literally tried to sell Sarah out, not once but twice, to pagan kings so that he might save his own neck. Thanks, Abe. Abe. Right, I mean, our boy Abe was not the Ephesians 5 model for sacrificially loving his woman. So let's make sure that we're clear what the text is saying, because you should never submit yourself to doing anything that violates God's law or the law of the Lamb. What this passage draws us to is the time when God called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And when you read the account of that story, what you don't hear from is you don't hear from Sarah. Meaning that her conduct in that was of a gentle, quiet, and submissive spirit because her character was one that trusted God for the life of her son. That's ultimately what Peter's talking to here. So the key here is that Sarah could call Abraham Lord, which is just another way for saying, Sir, you guys roll with that how you want. Because her ultimate hope was in the greater Lord of her life, which was the living God. Her trust in God enabled her to submit to her husband. And doesn't that tell us something about the trustworthiness of God, ladies? As you submit to your husband, you're submitting to a greater trust in God who is unfailing in his commitment to you and your husband. You know, I remember my mom became a believer about a year before my dad. And uh, you know, what's interesting is, she just didn't... She didn't get to rotary phone in her marriage just because pops hadn't been delivered yet into the family of faith. I say rotary phone because that's what we had back then in the uh, 1930s, okay? Um, But she needed her conduct and character to reflect her trust that God was working, right? And God was working. God was working. It was her walk with Christ that led my dad to repenting and believing in Jesus. It happened on a rainy night in a telephone booth at Los Angeles International Airport, a.k.a. LAX. But you see the bigger picture at work here? I mean, God used her submissive role, which, again, it was not easy if you knew my short-tempered, heavy-drinking pops. But he used that submissiveness to display the grace that he would equally lavish on my dad one day. So, the reason why Peter spends six verses on the wives is because of the precarious position they found themselves in for that particular culture and for that particular time. But these issues of calling and conduct and character meant they are no less applicable for where we are today. And then we get to verse seven where he hits up the fellas. This is what he says. Likewise. You guys catch that? Likewise. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Don't get angry at weaker vessel. We're going to hit that. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may be not hindered. So you don't want to miss the word likewise. Peter's not saying anything different to the man. Wait. Wait in terms of his desire for their heart. Now listen, we have different roles of getting to the same heart, which is dying to self to serve our spouse so that we are ultimately serving Christ. Peter says, be understanding and show honor. You know what that word honor means? Honor is the same word that would be used for the way that you would treat a king. That kind of honor is what Peter's driving at. And what that does is it paints a picture for how men are to esteem their wives, the care, the respect, the level of care and respect that they're to show their wives. And part of showing them that kind of honor is acknowledging God has created them with different levels of physical strength. So, by using this word, this phrase, weaker vessel, Peter does not mean weakling, right? He's not referring to moral, spiritual, mental capacity or ability. That's not what he's saying here. It simply means that God has built men and women different. So in the way that women, listen, need to subject themselves to their husbands, husbands need to show understanding and honor to their wives because God has not given them the same measure of physical strength as he has to men. Now, To all you ladies out there who could physically crush your husbands, all right, because you were on the Swedish Olympic shot-putting team or whatever, okay, this is just a general rule what he's laying out here for us. Peter is actually echoing Paul's admonition in Ephesians 5 for men when Paul said this, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies because he who loves his wife loves himself. Now listen, fellas. The way you treat your wife will easily be the most heart revealing action of your life. Well, she doesn't make it easy, Martin. I don't have that wife that you just described. And yet, this is what Peter prescribes, completely independent of the actions of the wife. Now, Peter's not making any caveats here, right? But he does provide some truthful motivation when he says your wife is co-heir- of God's grace. You know what that means? It means you're both equal recipients of all that God has given you through Christ. It further means that God uses a husband's obedience in the treatment of his wife to accomplish her dying to sin and living to righteousness. God is using you, husbands, as one of the means to display his glory and sanctification in your wife. Listen, you being like Jesus is how Jesus makes your wife more like himself. That's the call. That's the call for husbands. And Peter is so, to use a British phrase, bloody serious about this, that he says when it's not being lived out, it hinders your prayer life, men. You know what's interesting here about that? Is that Peter assumes that the husband has a prayer life. Peter is saying that a husband's failure to obey God in the way they serve their wives will adversely affect their relationship with Christ. That's how serious Peter is getting here on the men. And some of you men are just going to discount the weight of this. Listen, Peter doesn't say your career will be hindered. Peter is not saying your relationship with your kids will be hindered. He doesn't say your fantasy football picks will be hindered. He says your prayers. What does that tell you about prayer? Well, that as a husband who claims the name of Christ, it's the most important thing in danger of being affected when you are not living out the gospel to your wife let me say this a little more pointed. If the way you treat your wife does not affect your prayer life because you don't have one, then you're already mistreating your wife because devoting your life to praying for her is how God equips you to be understanding to her and to show her honor. If you are a man who is not living out the gospel by sacrificially dying to yourself for your wife, it's going to hurt your communion with the Lord because you are mistreating a daughter of God and a co-heir of God's grace. In other words, the elephant in the room, when you come before the Lord, will be the treatment of your wife if it lacks understanding and honor. Peter is saying this, the Lord will not allow this. That's why your prayers are hindered. So what does being co-heirs of God's grace even mean? We've hit on the wives, we've hit on the husbands, but what is being co-heirs, the way he describes it here at the end, what does that even mean? How does How does being co-heirs of grace help us to live this out? Because if we define grace, what we know about grace is that it's God's undeserved gift of life and peace that he grants us through repentance to Jesus Christ. The only reason why we can come to Jesus is because he first comes to us by extending his grace. He says, I'm going to give you myself even though you don't deserve me. And that grace permeates everything we do as disciples of Christ. So although God gives men and women different roles, clearly, to live out for the flourishing of their lives, He's given them an equal inheritance of the riches of His grace. So knowing that, here's how God's grace helps us to die to sin and live to righteousness in our marriages, especially if we find ourselves living in conditions that are less than our own desires. Because that's really what Peter's aiming at throughout this whole book. He's saying you guys are not living in ideal circumstances. You're not living in ideal circumstances in your community. You're not living in ideal circumstances in your marriage. How do we live as people, as a set-apart holy people of God in situations, in circumstances that are not ideal? Well, for our time this morning, he's leading us to grace by saying both husband and wife are co-heirs, they're co-recipients of God's grace. And here's why understanding grace in that way, here's how it helps us. Number one, grace gives worth to our roles. Grace gives worth to our roles. Everything God has for us in Christ is received equally by both men and women because he distinguishes our roles, not our worth. Our worth is set, but He does give us different roles. Instead, we become men and women who are equally striving to live like Christ for Christ so that our spouse can flourish in the role that Christ has called them to. It's a different role. Praise God. It's not about the role, but about the righteousness we gain through our role, which is a call to submit and die to ourselves. So here's a question. Are you allowing your spouse... To flounder or flourish in the role God has given them? Or are you making it a living hell? Can we just be that honest? Can we just be that honest? Are you making this so hard for your spouse to live out? You are. I am. Are you unhappy with the role that God has given you? You fight against it? Is there part of this that feels unfair? Is there a part of this that feels untenable? Then remember Christ, who we read in Matthew prayed three times in the garden to his father for a different role, but submitted to him anyway. What was the result? Death to sin, and the righteous requirement for peace with God paid in full for all of us who know Jesus. So grace, grace gives worth to our roles too. Grace keeps us fighting for the same thing. Grace, the acknowledgement of grace, the prayer for grace, the striving after grace, the reminders to one another for grace, it keeps us fighting for the same thing because you know what happens? We fight for the wrong things. We fight the wrong fight when we face off against each other. You know what the real fight is? The real fight is keeping Christ above all. That's the fight. Husband and wives need to give grace in equal measure and receive it in equal measure because both are sinners of equal measure. This battle for supremacy between the sexes It's the wrong fight. If God reigns supreme, if He reigns supreme in your marriage, then you serve Him by serving one another. Galatians 3 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So both of you, husbands and wives, are clothed in Christ. He says there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. But you are all one. In Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I means you are equally recipients of that grace. And we make this husband and wife thing so complicated, don't we? Our guard goes up. Our feminism kicks in. Our chauvinism kicks in. We will not surrender control. We will not submit. We will not Die. And the church struggles with issues of roles because we're in a culture that believes the worst thing that can happen is that we give up control. But your fight is never with your spouse. It's a spiritual war. It's flesh against spirit. It's old man versus new man. So you want to pray for the grace to fight the good and the right fight alongside your spouse who is needing the same amount of grace to fight as you are. So grace gives worth to our roles. It keeps us fighting for the same thing. And finally, grace provides us with true equality. What makes Christianity So countercultural is also what makes Christianity the only path toward true equality. I mean, the world just just fights for equality, don't they? They go out of their mind for equality, and they never achieve it. that strange? But in the process, you know what they're doing at the same time as they fight for equality? They reject functionality. These passages deal with both equality and functionality. Your true worth doesn't come from your role. It comes from the one in Philippians 2 who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equally with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. This is talking about Jesus. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross You know what the result of that is, that humbling? Right here it says, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the equality that we are striving for. Men and women co-heirs and recipients of grace, humbling ourselves like Jesus, bowing before the foot of the cross, praying in desperateness that God would continue to allow us to be crushed under the weight of our sin so that we can serve one another with the kind of humility that we saw Christ submit to the Father so that He could accomplish the Father's will on the cross." And if you go back to verse 3 in that Philippians passage, it says this, Do nothing, Paul says to the Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. See the pattern He's giving us? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Can we do what Christ calls us to do? Well, I I can't do what Christ calls my wife to do. My wife can't do what Christ calls me to do. But what happens when we die to sin and live to righteousness through obedience to Christ, what our spouse experiences is the grace to live out what God has called them to do, to live out their call with the kind of conduct and character that is being built in them so that it comes out and it allows a relationship to flourish. You should be stoked out of your mind over passages like this. Passages like this, being part of a countercultural God-exalting movement called the church that you are a part of, passages like this should thrill you because it gives you a way in which to live out your faith. You should be excited about this because you've returned from foolish living. So to live these things out means there's been a return from foolish living. And now you're under the care of the one who commands everything for your good and for God's glory. So when you learn about your role as a husband or wife, you're relieved because you can assume that before Christ, you thought wrongly about these things. You know why? Because you did And so God's Word gives us instruction in how to think rightly about what He's given us in our lives so that we have marriages that flourish. And you look over at your spouse and you see someone made in the image of Christ. You see someone who is loved by a Savior who paid a greater cost for them than you will ever come close to paying. Will you have this mind and heart For your spouse. Trusting that God will be faithful in the details and through the dilemmas and through all the downtimes. Because living this out is going to feel like war sometimes. But you can do this because you are co-recipients of an internal inheritance of grace delivered by Christ on the cross that created an equality that can't be bought for anything less. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us to rest in these passages? Lord, would you draw our minds back to Jesus, who submitted himself and who died to himself? so that we might experience the grace of Christ in our lives, so that we might experience salvation. Lord, would you draw our hearts back to Jesus in this? Lord, in those moments where there's so much conflict sometimes with our spouse, whether it's an unbelieving spouse, or whether it's with a spouse that claims Christ but is living like an unbeliever, Lord, we pray for repentance in those situations. We pray for a heart that would be crushed, under the glorious weight of the gospel, or that you would humble us as spouses. Lord, I also pray for those who are single in the room, that you would give them a unique role in the marriages of this church, that they can be help and support, that they can walk alongside people who are married that are struggling to live out these very things. Lord, give them the space and the grace to be a great, great measure of help and support for those who need this help because we are the body of Christ. We're here to walk alongside one another. Lord, thanks that in all of this, we don't look to ourselves, but we look to you, Christ, as the example for us to follow. Lord, give us submissive hearts to you first so that we can be humble to our spouses, so that we can show them honor and respect, so that, Lord, through the obedience of our lives and our hearts to the word, they might be won over. Lord, thank you that we have experienced so much grace because of the cross of Christ. Let us walk away today understanding it more deeply and allowing it for us to live that much more freely. We have the freedom to submit now to you and to one another. We have the freedom to show honor and understanding and thanks for that freedom. Because the world doesn't understand that as freedom. But we do. We understand that the words that you've given us are ultimately for our freedom. Because we have freedom in Christ. We are not slaves to the whims of our own selfish desires any longer. But Lord, we can grow in this freedom. So Lord, call us to that. Let us obey that call in joy and with thankfulness this morning. As we close, we pray, and all God's people said, amen.